0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Pullman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And Dollars and Change is on Sirius XM channel 132 every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, and then it's replayed throughout the week, and then you can also go ahead and find it on the app. So let's jump right in to talk about a little bit about what we've got going on. Our guest is Damon Satolo, who's Associate Professor in the Annenberg School for Communication and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. So, Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I have to say that I pushed to have Damon on the on the show because I saw you give a lecture at the Greater Philadelphia Leadership Exchange. You were the keynote, and um, I am not buttering you up, but almost everybody referred to you over and over again throughout that next day and a half. Because your ideas about how to get behavior and and movements to spread um, both cut across the usual expectations, and you can talk about that, but then also give us some hope for thinking about how we might make things happen. Man, so no the- pressure for the segment, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. No pressure for the segment. So why don't you talk a little bit about your research specifically? And I think when you talked about the virus approach, right. that was a really nice concrete uh, angle.
1: Yes, the way we've typically thought about social change is to think about spreading as, um, as a virus. Right. And this is a idea that was crystallized by Malcolm Gladwell in the book, The Tipping Point, but it's been around for, geez, 60, 70 years, right? And so Um, The intuition is that if people have contact with one another, then an idea or new behavior and innovation spreads from one to the next. Um, Ultimately, the idea that everything spreads like a virus has led us to some really failed um, social change initiatives because... Um, Most of my work has focused on the difference between a simple contagion where contact is sufficient for transmission, think of like a piece of gossip, Mm -hmm. um, versus a complex contagion where you require some social reinforcement to convince you to adopt the behavior. So think of any kind of behavior that's um, costly in the sense of it's expensive or that requires a bit of social legitimacy. And one of the big sort of differences between a simple contagion and a complex contagion is that you know, if you're exposed to someone with the measles, it doesn't matter how many people you know who don't have the measles. Right? If you're that sick, exposure, you're sick. If you're sick, you're sick. And that exposure is sufficient for transmitting it um, independent of how big the person's network is. For complex contagions, uh, the really big difference is that people are paying attention to the non-adopters. If you're worried about the legitimacy of a new behavior, and this is the entire space of social norms – you're going to be looking to all the people who haven't adopted a behavior. And the new adopter, the sort of one person you have contact with, is kind of a social deviant, right? It's not a good reason to adopt a behavior. (laughs) Um, And so this is one of the key reasons why people require social reinforcement. And it really changes our thinking, not just about the individual level perspective, but the whole sort of, you know, massive social network concept in terms of how spreading works in social networks has been using the epidemiological approach, to model and to think about how, like, a pattern of networks accelerate change. It works really well for the spread of viruses and gossip and completely falls flat when it comes to behavior change, and in fact, I think this is the most interesting point, the strategies for accelerating the spread of really innovative technologies or social movements or sort of new ideas, um, cultural changes inside organizations, are strategies that would be the exact um, opposite of what would make a disease spread. But those strategies are the most effective for making behavior spread. And
2: Damien, yeah. can we jump into an example? Sure. I think that'll help folks imagine. So the measles example paints a clear case of the the sort of one-to-one virus model. Can you give us a social movement example where people are looking to those non-adopters, yeah. something we can all say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, the
1: thing I focused on most recently is um, gender norms in organizations. Mm-hmm. and organizations. And... One of the core ideas in organizations is that if you have a broker, someone who's sort of connecting across different groups, that person can play a huge role in the spread of information and ideas across the organization. Um, The technical term for this is a structural whole. Basically, there's two groups or divisions in an organization that don't talk to each other, and the person that plays the broker um, can sort of manage the relationship. That can allow ideas in one part of the organization to spread to the other. But um, the thing to keep in mind is that that person gains a lot of um, power in the organization by being connected. Um, and that's a, it's a good thing. It's for an individual to become a broker means that they get attention each time a new idea spreads because they get credit for it, which means more people come to them with their ideas, which means their mm-hmm. brokerage networking you know, increases. So it's this reinforcing thing where it's good to be a broker. The downside of that is that across these different groups, everyone knows that the broker's incentive is to spread these things. So if one group um, has adopted, let's say something that's not simple, not a piece of information, something that's more complex, like program management software where you have to coordinate with your peers. Mm -hmm. Well, now adoption isn't a matter of me liking it. It's a matter of me and my peers coordinating. Well, if everyone in the sales division is coordinated on using this sort of software, and the broker tells us over in engineering we should use it too, We're going to think, well, the salespeople have different problems than we have. They have a different sort of, you know, ecology. They have a different sort of culture. We don't know if that's going to work for us. But if it's not just a single tie from the broker across the two groups, but you've got kind of a reinforcing network of of ties across the groups, this makes the bridge, instead of a narrow bridge where it's one person, it makes it into a wide bridge where you've got reinforcing um, connections. Now, that allows people in the receiving group, the engineering group, to – mutually see that the salespeople are working on with this um, project management platform and it works for them, but to also coordinate with each other and kind of agree that they're all going to adopt it together. And then that allows the sort of innovation to spread from one group to the next. And that's a really different model of spreading because it means that the width of the bridge between Mm -hmm. groups is just as important as the length. And that's something that historically has just been completely irrelevant for the spread of diseases. Now, where it really matters for the spread of um, norms regarding gender in organizations is that there's a lot of pushback from established um, and very successful people in organizations who haven't had to worry about gender norms. And what gender
0: so, norms are you thinking about? Behavior like have harassment or yeah. expectations of mommy track, or what, what are you counting in there? Well,
1: they're they're kind of bundled together. My okay. kind of lead on this is Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who yes. wrote Yeah, Men and Women of the Corporation, and um, she was one of the. I mean, there people have hypothesized about critical mass dynamics and tipping points for a very long time, right? A hundred years at least, um, but she was one of the first people in in, uh, in sociology to really ground it. In, a, in, a, in an application that just made so much sense. And her intuition was to say, look, it seems obvious that in order for organizational norms to change, and she was thinking about you know, equal pay, but she was also thinking about discrimination and also sexual harassment, mm-hmm. right? All these sort of constellation of features of how women are treated in organizations right. as a sort of a social norm, not just one behavior or another. Um, and she was saying, look, you know, it's intuitive to think that you would need you know, 51% of the organization to come around to this idea in order for the, the whole culture of the organization to change. But she hypothesized, and this is based on ethnographic work, that if the organization got about 25 to 30% of women in leadership roles, who all kind of coordinated with each other on sort of changing the norms that they sort of expected from one another and also from the rest of the organization, it could shift the entire culture of the organization. And so the one question is, well, how should those women be located, right? right. Where's the most effective um, sort of positions in the network for them to coordinate with each other and also to spread it? If you thought that that was a simple contagion, um, you would spread those people out as far and wide as possible. Each of your change agents would basically have massive so access to the network. Exactly. Yeah. Think of it like the measles. If you were an evil scientist trying to spread the measles, you would distribute your sort of seeds as far and wide as possible so that they got maximum exposure. The really counterintuitive thing about complex contagions and about social norm change is that when you really want to change the way people think and act, you actually want to connect the change agents to each other. It's counterintuitive because well, it's you're basically like you're already influenced. Yeah, you're like wasting those ties, yeah. right? Because those people could be influencing new people. and Instead, they're talking to the converted. Why do that? Well, the reason is because the change agents are surrounded by a sea of people who don't really like that idea. So it keeps them sort of resolute with this sort of this initiative, mm-hmm. and then also helps them coordinate to change other people's minds. Yeah.
2: I have to tell you, we um, we've done a lot of research on uh, what makes employers good employers of women, and we've done you know some exhaustive literature reviews, et cetera, on this. And one of the things that hasn't come up that people expect to are networking groups, mm-hmm. women's leadership circles, et, yeah. et cetera, and we don't have any evidence to suggest that that is something that would. Um, create positive change make Mm -hmm. a company good for women but this is very curious because what this is saying is that the existence of that helps to nudge these other behaviors that by having a group for the connectors for the change agents to connect with one another stay resolute stay informed and then go out and connect with other people it helps to sort of um, lubricate the changes they're looking to make. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up nudge, right? Because that's something that's um, talked about a lot since um, uh, uh, Thaler and Sunstein's book talking about the applications of behavioral economics Mm -hmm. to policy. Um, And their core intuition is that if you change the informational context, the choices that people would have made um, are now different, even though their underlying preferences haven't changed. Mm -hmm. And that's a big idea because it means that You don't have to convince people to believe in something. You just kind of present the space differently, and they'll act. It's basically these sort of cognitive mechanisms Mm -hmm. they're engaging. And what I'm suggesting is kind of a sociological version of that, which is that the social space that people are embedded in is controlling their behavior in certain ways that it's hard to see because we don't really pay attention to all the countervailing influences. We are just aware of them, Mm -hmm. right? They just make things look appealing or not appealing. So if you sort of structure the sort of activist group or the – Uh, change agents Mm -hmm. in in an organization differently, you actually manipulate their sort of comfort level with this initiative and their ability to influence other people just by virtue of these kinds of invisible features of the social networks and the way that you're sort of constructing them. Um, And that's something that very much along the the nudge lines is suggesting that uh, we can really systematically um, change the effectiveness of change initiatives by using different social strategies also, there's an important kind of ethical implication here, which comes out of, I mean, they're really clear about it in Nudge. They call it um, uh, paternal paternalistic <laughs> libertarianism. But their big idea is, look, there's no neutral stance. There's no one way of presenting information that's like the baseline. Mm-hmm. And then if you do permutations of that, you influence behavior. Every way you present information is influencing behavior. And um, and that's a big idea. It's been around for a long time, but they sort of articulate it in a policy context that also shows up in this sort of this idea of social architecture that I've been developing, which is that our social networks are continually affecting us. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you say, well, if you do an intervention with an organization or an online community or in, in a health context and you influence people's behavior without them knowing it, isn't there like a really fine ethical line? Absolutely, there is. <laughs> I mean, that's something that we should think about very carefully. And I think social scientists should spend more time talking not just about the ethics of their data collection, but the ethics of how their work should be used. Um, But I think that it's really uh, useful for us to acknowledge that there is no neutral stance in social networks, right? They're influencing us regardless. And if we don't like what we're seeing then it's, the onus is on us to sort of take a little bit of responsibility for how social networks ought to be reshaped.
0: And also to think about the framing, right? right. How we frame the ideas, et cetera. Because, again, if it's a no neutral stance, I've got to figure out – I'm not just saying the facts. I'm yeah. saying the facts in a way that uh, is going to shift people one way or another. And I may not realize without thoughtfulness about where I'm shifting them.
1: Yeah, this is a point that came up in our recent study. Um, this was in PNAS this last year, and this was a study of um, – uh, this is the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or people don't know. Um, but uh, the um, the study of political polarization, we looked at uh, Democrats and Republicans interpreting climate change data. And one of the tricks here is that in public policy, and this is true in, in health and organizational change, and also in um, climate change uh, policy advocacy, there's the belief that if we just Distribute the science or disseminate the information that the world will read it, understand it, and change their opinion. It's it's been falsified so many times it's amazing <laughs> that people say there's no still evidence for it and there's tons, no, and tons, no tons no against it. For it yeah. But it's a compelling idea. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, what we wanted to do was to show that as compellingly as possible that kind of baseline idea. You give you and know, Democrats, Republicans, the same information, and they will draw literally the opposite conclusion. Um, And so we were able to show that, and this was based on uh, data that NASA collected in 2013 on Arctic sea ice trends, which shows this massively downward curve in Arctic sea ice. Mm. And a large number of Republicans looked at that and said, well, we asked them where Arctic sea ice was going to be in in 15 years. And they said, well, obviously it's going to be higher. We were like, how did— how do, you make that, how do you make that inference? <laughs> right. um, and it's, of course, motivated reasoning. There's bias in the interpretation of information. But these are, you know, educated people yeah, with, yep. you know, the best intentions. And it just looks a certain What's way. What's their answer? Um, well, the idea was uh, that the data are noisy, right? So the line, even though the massive over the course of 40 years is this massive downward trend, there's little bumps up and down. So if there's a little bump up at the end... You can use that as evidence for saying, well, now it's going to keep going up continuously, even though the trend over the last 40 years is a massive downward curve, right? Mm -hmm. So it's ways of taking little bits of noise um, or um, imperfections in the data collection and then turning it into an argument for what the whole story says. And, of course, this frustrated NASA because the whole agenda they had with releasing these data was to show that a large scientific neutral organization – could collect these data and release it to the public and just show definitively what was happening. And the fact that the vast majority of the audience they were trying to reach interpreted the data to say the exact opposite of what NASA was intending, you know, confounded their whole attempt. And And so what we did is we we collected those data. We found you know, polarization in the groups. Everyone, you know, the Democrats saw one thing. The Republicans saw another. Was it, were
2: there social norms at play? Was it like 10 Democrats in a room with the report or
1: individual? Oh, no, these were, these, we had 2,000 people in this study. Um, and what we did was we allowed people just individually to look at the data. Mm-hmm. And then we, uh, we sort of gave them the opportunity to just say, what do you think in 15 years? What, what are the RTCS okay. levels going to be? And our big question was whether it's going to be up, up or down. Um, and then what we did was we let them interact in a social network. Now, we designed it like a social media space. So we had all kinds of graphics and mm-hmm. images, you know, that made it like fun visually, like eye candy showing the, the um, Democratic uh, Party logos and the Republican Party logos in the space. Um, and after three, you know, four or five, six, seven minutes of interacting, uh, we then asked them the question again and nothing changed. Right. So the social interaction was completely useless. We ran the same exact study, except we took all of the logos out. We just removed kind of the graphics and then ran the study again. And um, the both groups, the Democrats and the Republicans, increased to like 90 percent accuracy in their capacity to make accurate predictions about. Global climate wow. change, and there was zero polarization. Like they literally were identical in their capacity to interpret the graph.
2: Once the social Once, networks were stripped of identity,
1: well, no, identity was was wasn't there in either case. It was literally just a picture in the corner of the screen the, that had that nothing to do with it. Wow. That's what's so striking about it. This was what yeah. you're bringing up with framing effects is that <laughs> it wasn't even that you are looking at people and saying, "Oh, you're a Republican. Oh, you're a Democrat." Right. It was anonymous
2: people in both. Just cases. a reminder that it you was are just a picture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was just well, like, that's what they say. If um, I I've, I've read a study. And we're going to have to oh. let Damon go to okay. class. Oh, I have to, I have <laughs> to go he's, teach. Yeah. He's rushing off to class. <laughs>
0: We've been talking to Damon Centola. Let's he's follow him the, to class with the mics. So. <laughs> exactly. The associate professor in the Annabelle School for Communication and the School of Engineering. Great. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Okay, bye-bye. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio,